Chapter 7 from Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 7 A Political Molecule. The most arrant denier must admit that a man often furthers larger ends than he is conscious of and that while he is transacting his particular affairs with the narrow personacity of a respectable aunt, he subserves an economy larger than any purpose of his own. Society is happily not dependent for the growth of fellowship on the small minority already endowed with comprehensive sympathy. Any molecule of the body politic, working towards his own interest in an orderly way, gets his understanding more or less penetrated with the fact that his interest is included in that of a large number. I have watched several political molecules being educated in this way by the nature of things into a faint feeling of fraternity. But at this moment I am thinking of Spike, an elector who voted on the side of progress, though he was not inwardly attached to it under that name. For abstractions or deities having many specific names, local habitations, and forms of activity, and so get a multitude of devout servants who care no more for them under their highest titles than the celebrated person who, putting with forcible brevity a view of human motives now much insisted on, asked what posterity had done for him that he should care for posterity. To many minds, even among the ancients, thought by some to have been invariably poetical, the goddess of wisdom was doubtless worshipped simply as the patroness of spinning and weaving, now spinning and weaving from a manufacturing, wholesale point of view, was the chief form under which Spike from early years had unconsciously been a devotee of progress. He was a political molecule of the most gentlemanlike appearance, not less than six feet high, and showing the utmost nicety in the care of his person and equipment. His umbrella was especially remarkable for its neatness, though perhaps he swung it unduly in walking. His complexion was fresh, his eyes small, bright, and twinkling. He was seen to great advantage in a hat and greatcoat, garments frequently fatal to the impressiveness of shorter figures, but when he was uncovered in the drawing-room, it was impossible not to observe that his head shelved off too rapidly from the eyebrows toward the crown, and that his length of limb seemed to have used up his mind so as to cause an air of abstraction from conversational topics. He appeared, indeed, to be preoccupied with a sense of exquisite cleanliness, clapped his hands together and rubbed them frequently, straightened his back, even opened his mouth and closed it again with a slight snap, apparently for no other purpose than the confirmation to himself of his own powers in that line. These are innocent exercises, but they are not such as give weight to a man's personality. Sometimes Spike's mind, emerging from its preoccupation, burst forth in a remark delivered with smiling zest, as that he did like to see gravel walks well rolled, or that a lady should always wear the best jewellery, or that a bride was a most interesting object. But finding these ideas received rather coldly, he would relapse into abstraction, draw up his back, wrinkle his brows longitudinally, and seem to regard society 
even including gravel walks, jewelry, and brides, as essentially a poor affair. Indeed, his habit of mind was desponding, and he took melancholy views as to the possible extent of human pleasure and the value of existence. Especially after he had made his fortune in the cotton manufacture and had thus attained the chief object of his ambition, the object which had engaged his talent for order and preserving application, for his easy leisure caused him much ennui. He was abstemious and had none of those temptations to sensual excess which fill up a man's time first with indulgence and then with the process of getting well from its effects. He had not, indeed, exhausted the sources of knowledge, but here again his notions of human pleasure were narrowed by his want of appetite, for though he seemed rather surprised at the consideration that Alfred the Great was a Catholic, or that, apart from the Ten Commandments, any conception of moral conduct had occurred to mankind, he was not stimulated to further inquiries on these remote matters. Yet he aspired to what he regarded as intellectual society, willingly entertained beneficed clergymen, and bought the books he heard spoken of, arranging them carefully on the shelves of what he called his library, and occasionally sitting alone in the same room with them. But some minds seem well glazed by nature against the admission of knowledge, and Spikes was one of them. It was not, however, entirely so with regard to politics. He had had a strong opinion about the Reform Bill, and saw clearly that the large trading towns ought to send members. Portraits of the Reform heroes hung framed and glazed in his library. He prided himself on being a liberal. In this last particular, as well as in not giving benefactions and not making loans without interest, he showed unquestionable firmness. On the repeal of the Corn Laws, again he was thoroughly convinced. His mind was expansive towards foreign markets, and his imagination could see that the people from whom he took corn might be able to take the cotton goods which they had hitherto dispensed with. On his conduct in these political concerns, his wife, otherwise influential as a woman who belonged to a family with a title in it, and who had condescended in marrying him, could gain no hold. She had to blush a little at what was called her husband's radicalism, an epithet which was very unfair impeachment of Spike, who never went to the root of anything. But he understood his own trading affairs, and in this way became a genuine, constant political element. If he had been born a little later, he could have been accepted as an eligible member of Parliament, and if he had belonged to a high family, he might have done for a member of the government. Perhaps his indifference to views would have passed for administrative judiciousness, and he would have been so generally silent that he must often have been silent in the right place. But this is empty speculation. There is no warrant for saying what Spike would have been and known so as to have made a calculable political element if he had not been educated by having to manage his trade. A small mind, trained to useful occupation for the satisfying of private need, becomes a representative of genuine class needs. Spike objected to certain items of legislation because they hampered his own trade, but his neighbor's trade was hampered by the same causes, 
and though he would have been simply selfish in a question of light or water between himself and a fellow talisman his need for a change in legislation being shared by all his neighbours in trade ceased to be simply selfish and raised him to a sense of common injury and common benefit true if the law could have been changed for the benefit of his particular business leaving the cotton trade in general in a sorry condition while he prospered spike might not have thought that result intolerably unjust but the nature of things did not allow of such a result being contemplated as possible it allowed of an enlarged market for spike only through the enlargement of his neighbor's market and the possible is always the ultimate master of our efforts and desires spike was obliged to contemplate a general benefit and thus became public-spirited in spite of himself or rather the nature of things transmuted his active egoism into a demand for a public benefit certainly if spike had been born a marquis he could not have had the same chance of being useful as a political element but he might have had the same appearance have been equally null in conversation sceptical as to the reality of pleasure and destitute of historical knowledge perhaps even dimly disliking jesuitism as a quality in catholic minds or regarding bacon as the inventor of physical science the depths of middle-aged gentlemen's ignorance will never be known for want of public examinations in this branch End of chapter seven this librivox recording is in the public domain